God made us to be well, to thrive in every way, to enjoy his creative masterpiece that is our world. He made us to multiply his gifts, set the table and eat together. But what about money? It's the currency that connects us, our work to our needs, our abundance to others' lack, our dreams to making them a reality. But the narrative in our head is stuck in the cycle of guilt or greed, comparison or discontentment. Let's listen in to Eric Averill and how he's leaned into this often neglected conversation around how we steward the resources given to us. I have the pleasure of having with me here today, Eric Averill, who is the co-founder and a partner at AWM Capital. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for uh, for having me. I've been an avid listener for a very long time, so I'm I'm honored to be a guest now. So Eric and I had the the opportunity to spend four years in in the Goheens living room, so we were in seminary together. And so this conversation is a long time coming because I got to hear about Eric's work just through conversations wrestling through what does it mean to live out the gospel in our everyday life. Um, so I'm I'm super excited to just be able to hear your perspectives and share them uh, with our audience. Um, can you start off just by sharing the mission of AWM? Um, talk about how you uniquely approach this idea of stewarding capital. So we're what's known as a multifamily office that ultimately means we partner with families typically of of high affluence to help them really what we would say build a multi-generational wealthy flourishing family. Mm-hmm. And that mission, I think the key thing that most family offices would talk about is is there's this emphasis on the multi-generational wealth component. But for us, the the key linchpin in our mission statement is actually the flourishing family and and that's what we're driving for. Mm. Okay. So talk about I've heard you as I've stalked listening to other podcasts and learn from you, the way you talk about capital, it's not just money and wealth isn't just money. How do you define those terms, capital and wealth in ways that gives it a lot more um, nuance and substance? We talk a lot about reclaiming or redefining the word wealth because in its in its current version, when we hear the word wealth, we typically go straight to financial capital. We go to money. And it's it's absolutely that, but it's so much more. And we like to talk a lot about going back to the original definition or a definition from the ancient English language that wealth actually means well-being that it is living in a state of of really joy, happiness, and fullness. And so when you start to think through that definition, wealth is much more than just financial capital. It's what we would really entail is it, it involves your human capital, which is your physical capital, your intellectual capital. And then what we would say probably the most important is, is your social relational capital. And so when we talk about what it means to be a flourishing family is it's looking at the purpose of wealth as a tool. The financial capital is actually a tool that should serve the most important relational social capital of, of a family. Hmm. So good. So much more of a holistic approach. Okay, I really want to get into you know more of how you um, 
are just really intentional with your work as someone who follows Jesus. Um, but let's back up just a little bit because you didn't, you know, just go to college, get into finance. It wasn't just this direct route. Your vocation has um, evolved through the years. So can you talk about how this journey started for you? Spoiler alert, before this, you played baseball professionally. So just tell us more about your journey. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, I always tell people I didn't go to college to uh, major in something academically. I went to college to major in in baseball. Uh, and so I had the, the opportunity to play at Arizona State University and then sign professionally after that. And it was money was always a part of the conversation because as a professional athlete, spoiler alert, they make a lot of money. Um, it, but we also don't have a history as an athlete community of necessarily making very good decisions or not having good, uh, outcomes, both financially or relationally. Mm -hmm. And so when I was on the journey as a young athlete, this was something that was always of interest to me is that I didn't want to just be, uh, one of the default athletes that ended up divorced and broke. And so there was something that was already stirring in my heart that when I was playing professionally, it was an interest of mine. Um, and then what I would say from a, from a faith standpoint, thankfully I just had incredible mentors and pastors through that journey that would really help challenge that you're more than an athlete. Your identity is not stuck as an athlete. And mm -hmm. so that was what really sparked this conversation of going, you know, my vocation is being the athlete money is a byproduct. There's this huge platform as an athlete to have impact for good. How do we steward all of these things in a way that is life-giving? to myself, but more importantly, a blessing to those that I come in contact with. And so that was the journey that when my baseball career ended, I knew a hundred percent that I wanted to stay in relationship to help athletes through, through that journey of really, how do we maximize the blessings God's given us? But more importantly, how do we also turn it to be a blessing for our family and for, for the re remainder of the world? Mm. So this wasn't something that you had to kind of scramble to figure out um, when your career ended. There was seeds of it that were already there through that process. Thankfully, there were seeds there. Now, I had no idea uh, I would not be having the conversations I, I had today. It was much more stuck at the elementary level of, of focusing on the money, mm -hmm. believing that money was the issue. Whereas today I see, you know, money as, as an incredible resource that needs to be planned for, stewarded. And we can talk about where those, there are pitfalls around the financial capital. But now, you know, I had no view of the concept of a flourishing family or God's in, intended purpose of the vehicle of a multi-generational family as a way that he manifests himself to the world and gives us this beautiful responsibility to be stewards of all the different capital that we have. Uh, you know, I didn't have that viewpoint. It was uh, just more of, it was more about taking care of money in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, but it's so cool to think you experienced firsthand and then saw around you some area of brokenness. Um, and you wanted to move towards that in love because it was part of your your journey and your experience and just the faithfulness of that next right step and the opportunity for growth that came from it. I think the the word you use there, right, is is the love. Um, and it is good. It's it's always fun to look back and go, 
how God has just woven the story of my life in ways where you go, God, you were so faithful. And I had no idea what you were doing in those moments, especially the moments of adversity. When I think the, the thing about being a young professional athlete is you go through a career crisis at a very young age, whether you play for a very long time, which is you're done by 40 years old, which is still young yeah. is your whole life. The world has valued you in a specific way. Mm. And then you go through this you go through this process where you're no longer the athlete that the world kind of values and upholds. But looking back, I can see how God just like was present all like at every single moment. Right. And just mm -hmm. his love for me and, and now being able to use our platform in a way to really do what you're talking about is, is love on our clients and, and teach them how to be faithful stewards of what God's given them. Hmm. Mm. I'm curious, what was that process like to, as you said, this big transition out of, I mean, something so all-encompassing, right? Being a professional athlete, was there a lot of grief and having to let go of that dream, but then still choose to remain engaged with that group of people? Because I, I, I imagine there would be a, a pull to just want to like leave, like just the grief would feel heavy, that tension. I don't, I'm wondering for you. It's a great question. It's something that I see a lot of athletes go through or truthfully, anybody who's left something that they've been a part of for a very long time. And as much as we don't want it to define who we are, it is a big part of who we are. Um, yeah. It's not the totality of it. So there was definitely a season of difficulty of of going, this door was shut, not by my choice. And that's really hard is mm -hmm. you, you've trained for something and dedicated years and years at it. And then that door closes and you don't have the ability to open it back up. It was definitely a difficult process. And what I would say is the most difficult process is how people related to you outside of the game. So mm -hmm. When you're, when you're in the locker room, you know, you're part of the fraternity or brotherhood. Once you're yeah. out of the locker room, you're gone. And mm -hmm. even I would say one of the things that I think we don't do well within the world is most of the time you realize people are relating to you because of your position in the world. And what I mean by that is, as a professional athlete, you know, everybody wants access to you when you're the athlete. But then when you're gone and you're no longer the athlete, the people you thought are in your life for certain reasons aren't there anymore. And that's the most difficult thing is even if you're in a healthy standpoint from an identity standpoint, it doesn't mean that all the other people who were involved in your life have a healthy view of who you were as an athlete. And I think that's the thing you grief the most is the lost relationships that yeah. you come to realize weren't, weren't real friendships. Mm, man. I just think, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of courage to continue pressing into that space and have to wade through those waters. And so, but what a gift, I mean, somebody who hasn't been through that personally could never serve, um, the clients in the same way, you know? And so, so choosing to press in is, um, makes it possible for you to love in a way that other people, other people can't. And I think that's, really cool part of your story and your sense of vocation as it's evolved. It hasn't been two distinct separate things, but it's kind of remained connected um, 
Okay, uh, so let's get back to just this idea of stewarding wealth and capital. I will say, as someone who grew up in in the church, I just, money was kind of a dirty word, you know, like wanting money or, or trying to earn money. Like it almost was like hot in my hands, you know, like when I worked in the restaurant and have all this cash and I'm like, I give some of this away. <laughs> so talk about what misconceptions have you wrestled with both in the church and then, you know, potentially in, in the world as well around money and wealth. It's interesting. I would say outside the church, people are far more comfortable with money than inside the church. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a, it's a sad reality. It's, it's something that I'm super passionate about is some way, somewhere along the way, uh, our theology of money was messed up mm. thinking that it's, that it's an evil thing, or we should feel dirty or insecure about it mm. when it's really what I would say is first, we still, we relate to money still according to the ways of the world and not according to scripture. So the first thing that we need to do is bring an awareness of the misunderstanding around the, the blessing of resources in general. And, and, you know, I would say like computer programming, we need to delete uh, all the bad stuff and we need to reprogram and what scripture, how it talks about wealth, how it talks about money and stewardship. And ultimately, it's interesting. I was listening recently to a, an older podcast by Andy Crouch on, on the most famous passage of Jesus around money, right? That it's, we cannot serve two masters. Uh, you cannot serve both God and, and mammon. And it was so helpful because really talking about, no, it's the love of money, right? And, and he, I highly encourage people to listen to this. He really talks about why in scripture, a lot of the, the old translations actually doesn't translate uh, the word mammon. It, it leaves it in Aramaic. And yeah. it's because the things we don't translate are actually names. Um, and in the old, our old church history, they would actually view mammon as, as, as a demonic, uh, force, a demon. Um, and so it, it really talks a lot about, you know, why can we render to Caesar money that Jesus says, that's okay. You can serve essentially, um, you know, Caesars and then render to God what is God's, but Jesus is very strong that we can't serve mammon. Um, and so I think there's this misunderstanding that at the end of the day, when resources are stewarded appropriately, they're a great gift. It's that when all of a sudden what God meant as a means to an end becomes the, the becomes the ultimate end, becomes the scoreboard, that's where things get wonky. And so I think within the church, kind of the answer has been one of two ways, and they're both unhelpful. One is like, I'm terrified of money and I feel I feel it's sinful and dirty, so I just want to get rid of it. Like, yeah. like money's bad. And the only way to cleanse money is by giving it all away. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's this bad theology that me as a business individual or somebody else, if they create what wealth that the only way to make it sacred, right. Is to give it mm -hmm. all away. That's, yeah. that's, that's unwise stewardship. We'll talk about generosity is amazing. And it's the number one way to fight against greed and fear of money. Um, mm -hmm. It breaks the power of money. And we, as the followers of Jesus are meant to be a generous people. So um, that's super important. Or you see the flip side where you've got the prosperity gospel mm -hmm. um, where, mm -hmm. where, you know, they try to tell you that 
you know, essentially if you're doing things properly, God's going to bless you materially. And that's, that's not the promises of the Bible. So, you know, within the church, I think one of the first things we've got to really realize is to not be afraid of this conversation. We need to, we need to reclaim it. And this is hard within our churches because, because the world does serve mammon, because that is the most, it is the strongest force at play. The minute we start to press in against it, us in the church pews, right? We, we, we make all the excuses in the world. Well, the pastors just want our money or X, Y, Z. And so, but this is a, this is an area that I feel strongly about that money is one of the few things that has not been brought under the Lordship of Christ. I always, you know, I, I did a a first Wednesday uh, uh, interview a few months back and I always find it fascinating, right? When we get in our church circles, we'll, we'll ask people, Hey, how's your marriage? How's your purity? How's all these things? But if I ask you the question, how much money do you make? And do you have any debt? And did mm. you give? Yeah. You want to you want to see people squirm. <laughs> um, and I think it's a really sad thing because at the end of the day, I think what it really reveals is most of us are still under the lordship of mammon when it comes to the financial resources that God's entrusted us. Um, And so I'll stop there and let you respond. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I think that's so good. And I think it's a tendency we see sometimes in Christian circles where we see something that is powerful and culture that's doing harm, how, how you said the world serves mammon. And instead of wrestling through the tension and creating a redemptive lens, we sometimes withdraw into one or we just kind of give in. So I love that you are committed to just leaning into the tension. Um, What has been transformative for you um, as you've as you've asked these questions? Is there is there parts of scripture or certain people or um, ideas that have really transformed your your lens? Yeah, of course, we were not going to make it through a podcast without talking about uh, Mike and Marnie. So those four years sitting in seminary completely changed the way in which I see the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And reading scripture is one story, right? The The core gospel dynamic of it. It yeah, it totally changed my viewpoint on everything and understanding that God has created this good world and mm-hmm. really since Genesis three, right? Like he has been on this redemptive movement and understanding that his original intent of creation was good has been one of the most powerful things because if I start with the lens of like, God is going to restore all things yeah. for the new heavens and the new earth. My lens of how I approach things first and foremost are not one of, you know, this is the, in, uh, the material world is bad. I need to get away from it so I can, you know, I can whatever pop up into celestial heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, it totally changes the fact of our intent is the people of God. And so uh, that time in seminary specifically, you know, I, I gift everybody like the true story of the world. And and here's why is like, when I break down the conversation around money, specifically when I'm talking to, to us within the church who would proclaim ourselves as followers of Jesus is it's actually very simple to understand money and our relationship with money and how we should be stewarding it. We have to actually start at, at, at who owns it all. 
Um, mm. in this, this ownership mentality goes, if I understand the true story of the world that God created this good, beautiful, um, world and placed us right to cultivate and to create and, and ultimately, yes, there's, there's sin and death, but then there's the promise in, in Genesis 12 to Abraham of like, through your family, we're going to bless all nations. And that mm -hmm. we're supposed to be this preview to the, to the world of what it looks like when we, when we, you know, live into the way God creates the world. If I now all of a sudden understand that I own nothing in this world, and also Genesis 12, I think one of the other things that's overwhelming in today's culture is like everybody tells you, you got to find your purpose mm. um, and you're, we're all supposed to have these unique mission statements. And, and I think there's good, there's goodness in figuring out how God's individually gifted each of us and, and called us, but we don't have to figure out our mission. It's been given to us. We've been blessed to be a blessing. Right. Mm. And so yeah. if, yeah. if all of a sudden I understand God owns it all. I have a mission where I'm supposed to be a blessing to the world. I have a very simple role and it's called stewardship, right? I've been entrusted specifically through the multi-generational family to, to use the unique gifts and works that God's prepared beforehand, ultimately not to increase my luxury or comfort, but to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so, you know, that time in seminary with, with, uh, with Mike and Marnie Goheen, and then there's a book that's been really formative around understanding the multi-generational family in scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. by uh, a gentleman named Jeremy Pryor. The book's called Family Revision. And that has been a big unlocking too, because in Western culture, we think about the nuclear individualistic you know, family. Yeah. The, the family in the West is actually meant to serve the individual. But I believe when we look in scripture, it's the other way around that the individual is actually a part of a family unit meant to, to fulfill the mission of the family, which is God's vehicle uh, to be a blessing to the world. And so that is those, you know, the theology of one true story and the understanding of the vehicle intent of the multi-generational family has formed and shaped really the way I think about things. Wow. That is, you know, I had never, as you talk about Abraham and I think about Israel as a family of families through whom the whole world would be blessed. It's fascinating. I, I think, yeah, because I have a Western lens, it's, it's such an interesting concept, especially when it comes to stewarding wealth. Um, how has that translated into your uh, your work and your practice with people maybe that aren't coming from a faith context? So the way I I try to approach it with them is always talking about, okay, let's actually parking lot the money. Let, let's set that aside for a second and just ask the questions of like, tell me, tell me three years from now, five years from now, like what, what would bring you joy? Like what, what would life look like in 99.9% .9 of the time there is the majority of the version is talked about relationships. Mm. It's talked about at the end of the day, it's, it's spending time with the people we love and impacting the people we care the most about. And so when we start to talk about that, I just ask a lot of questions of, you know, really around, like, how do you view, like, why are you married? Why did you have kids? Why do you, why do, why are relationships important to you? This version of what you think life should look like three to five years down the road. Then the question is, is like, well, what are you doing today to make that a reality? 
And then how are the resources in which you have, how are those actually supporting that journey? And for a lot of people, they've not connected their money as an actual resource to help them fulfill the vision of what life they're after. They're, they're, they're fragmented and segmented in such a way that it's like the world's told me I'm supposed to optimize my money for maximum financial gain. Mm. And it actually isn't connected, nor does it matter of what life I'm trying to live. They're, they're fragmented. And so I try to bring those back together to help them understand and see what actually drives joy is not material possessions or financial capital that should always support what we're after. Um, And so that's, that's how I start to open up the conversation. And you learn a lot when you ask people, why are you married? And why do you have kids? And and it opens up a a really fun conversation. Hmm. So good. I'm curious in our world that has, I think we all, you know, have experienced how polarized and how black and white things have become. Mm -hmm. And so while we talk about in the church, how sometimes we had demonized wealth. Now I think we're seeing um, sometimes in culture, this, this black and white, you know, of um, demonizing the wealthy or the rich and not not being able to like dehumanizing in in some ways. I'm curious how working with people that you know, as you said, your clients tend to be, um, um, you know, in the upper echelon of wealth. How have you seen their humanity? Seen how they've experienced brokenness? Um, how can you paint a, a, I guess, a more human picture of people that are sometimes now, yeah, dehumanized? It's super sad because the thing, and this goes back to the Andy Crouch podcast that is so powerful. He talks about mammon really being a demonic force of power. And one of the negative things about about mammon is it turns people into transactions. And so like Satan has wanting to dehumanize all of us. And when we as a society look at the scorecard is we can actually measure somebody's wealth somewhere along the way we've determined culturally at certain wealth, like you're no longer a human. You're actually, you're dehumanized. You're, you're now, your value is now based off of a bank account. And if it doesn't meet the way I think you use your money, you're a bad person. And that's, that's tragic because our, our standing as image bearers, is not contingent on our bank account, let alone on our status of our job or or anything, right? Is is like we are loved and because we are simply loved and we're all created in the image of God. And so I see the brokenness all the time. I was I was on a call this morning. Um I can't give too much specificity um because it would it would reveal who the client is, but let's just say there's an athlete who's going through a situation where he's going to sign a contract for north of a hundred million dollars. Um, and my conversation today with him was, Hey, I I'm super grateful for this, but I'm stressed. And my wife and I have anxiety because we're going to make a financial decision. That's theoretically going to set the trajectory of my family's life for the next six years. And 
we're going to be leaving friends behind and we're a young married couple and we're going to be in a place we've never been. And, you know, society is going to say like, poor you professional athlete, right? Like shut up and play baseball is what they would say. Um, but, but being able to sit in attention with them, the humanity and, and not, not quickly say money solves all your problems. This is still a human. And I think that that's where we need to realize like, once again, it's not a level of money. That's the issue. It's, it's, are we being faithful stewards? And what I would always say for all of us, right. Go back to the scripture of like, Hey, before you can take the speck out of your brother's eye, like, have you removed the log from yours? And I think there's something that's very honest around money that within the Christian circles, we can believe everybody else who has more than us should be more responsible than we should be. They should be more accountable to the way they use their money than we should. But I think that's the interesting thing of, of scripture is that we know that the way in which we handle our earthly wealth is actually a testing ground. Um, you know, it, in I pulled it up in, in Luke 16, 11, it says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And, you know, this is where we're talking about ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be responsible as stewards to ushering God's kingdom, to be the co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And, and that, that can sound so like, oh my goodness, scandalous, but, but what God doesn't say here is, is if you have $10 million, you're going to be held accountable. It says, whatever God's entrusted you. So are we being faithful stewards with our, with our $1, let alone with our hundred million, because God, it also says, do not show favoritism. Right. And, and so I think there's a lot discernment for us within the church to go, how am I, how are Sadie and I being accountable to the resources God's given us? And if I'm honest am I looking at other people as transaction based off their bank account or am Mm. I just loving them as my neighbor? Mm. So good and convicting. And yeah, it just makes me think how much harder, how much more responsibility, how much heavier when there's more money to steward. And those of us who see what we have and just kind of blow it off as we don't have the power, the impact like that's not, not only is it not true, but it's in a way freer, right? Cause it's not trying to navigate and figure out all these moving pieces. Um, yeah, that's, um, just such a good call of looking at our own part of God's world and the resources he, he's given us and, and through love, like how am I loving those entrusted to me, um, and loving the world? I, I, yeah, yeah, I would just. I think that that's, that's one of the things that the world loves to do is take our eyes off of our own gratitude for what God has entrusted us. And we believe this lie that if I had more, I would do better than you. Mm-hmm. If I was in your position, I would handle it differently. But we have to ask ourselves and go, well, how do you steward what you currently have? And what's the intent of it? When I, when, when Sadie and I wake up, you know, are we, are we training and equipping our, our children to be actually God's people, to be faithful stewards of the, of the time 
and the talent and the relationships in a way that that isn't self-seeking, but it's about being a benefit and a flourishing to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important challenge for us is like, our focus actually shouldn't even be growing capital or money for the, for, for its sake, right? It's, it's really us. We've been entrusted as God's people with this incredible gift to say, show, show the world who I am and the way in which life can bring joy and flourishing to you when you are faithful stewards of that. And we're, we're far less likely to hold ourselves accountable to that call. And it's a lot easier to just judge other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing within the church is we need to start with really going to scripture. And, and I was reading in, in, uh, Richard Bauckham's, uh, commentary on James last night. And Kierkegaard has this, has this point talking about in scripture of, when we read, when we read in James and, and it talks about you being like the man who sees himself in the mirror and forgets what he looks like and moves on. One of the things we forget is, is like that mirror is actually showing a reflection of who we are. And so am I looking in that mirror and am I seeing myself and am I reflecting back who God's created me to be? And I, that mirror image is so important that we as families and individuals, we need to really assess what we're seeing in our mirror first before we're worried about what other people are, you know, who, what, what we're looking at other people for. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. I'm wondering where do you personally find the most joy in all the work that you do? Where do you naturally connect with God, connect with kind of that, that deep person that you are in your day-to-day work? Mm. It's truthfully having the conversation with our clients that have believed the lie that they don't matter as humans because they're successful by the world's standards. Hmm. Where I see God show up in conversations where you can just sit with people and see their humanity is what gives me the greatest joy. You know, I feel God is, has just gifted me in a way to be able to connect with people regardless of their circumstances. And, um, I would say is also given Sadie and I, uh, and I talk a lot about Sadie and I, because it's not my work. It's, you know, we're on mission as a family that God's given us this company. And for what gives me the most joy is when Sadie and I get to engage in conversations with other couples. And we've had a lot of tragedy between the two of us in our lives at a very young age. And just seeing, seeing how God's used the beauty from the ashes to connect with people in the midst of that has been, it's what gives me excitement is to wake up and enter into conversations and instill for families, like hope for flourishing, because very few people are actually walking around believing that they deserve flourishing. And that's God's intention for all of us. That's, that's for everybody. And, and that's what gives me joy is when you can help a family see, yeah, I should be, I, I deserve to flourish. And that's, that's a reality that should happen. Um, It doesn't mean financial flourishing, right? But the joy filled life is the promise of the hope of the gospel. Mm, it's beautiful. Oh, I'm so, I'm just so glad that you do this work and that you 
see yourself so fully and intentionally as an agent of God um, and and just a, a, a presence of the gospel in this space. It's um, yeah, it's it's a gift. It's very inspiring and really grateful for you sharing with us today and and just talking about these points of tension and and just having a such a creative um, lens on it all. Okay, I have one last question, and this is an ode to our our uh, mutual friend who used to host this, <laughs> host this podcast, Jim Mullins. He always would end with a fun, creative last question. So I know that you know you from a young age had a passion for baseball. Um, I don't think that ever quite goes away. So if you could form a dream team um, to play one season, and this could be from baseball's past or present, who would be in uh, in each position on the field? Wow. You know, that's, that's such a Mullins question because he didn't even think through it. This is why it's so Mullins. A, it's super creative and I love the question, but there's, there's no context for the time on the podcast. There's nine positions on a baseball field. We could spend a whole podcast talking about this. (laughs) What I would say is, uh, the thing I love about baseball is it is, uh, it is a team sport and it takes Mm -hmm. nine unique individuals that have different skill sets and talents and it all has to come together to win right you know it, whether it's jim's book uh it being a symphony baseball is kind of the same way as mm-hmm. the thing i love about the sport too is it's like a quirky sport because not everybody looks like when an nfl player walks through the, the room like you know that's yeah. an nfl player uh-huh. same thing with basketball baseball it's not that way um so i'm not going to give you each person at each position, I'll give you one position and he's a current player. Like I'd put Jacob deGrom on the, on the mound as the starting pitcher, which anybody who knows baseball reads, he when healthy, he's the best pitcher probably to ever play the game. Um, and he's just a good human. And so that's Mm -hmm. more importantly, but, uh, you know, my, my favorite team that I would have to go back to is going, if you could actually recreate the team, um, uh, from the movie, the Sandlot, that's like my, my favorite story because it's just a bunch of young kids who play, play the game for the love of the game. And, uh, you know, they're just, I think that that's, that's the, that's the thing I love about the game is watching people come together and from all different kind of walks of life and skill sets and, and, and having fun. So sorry, sorry, Jim, I had to skate the question. <laughs> Oh, well, this has been so much fun. Um, thanks again for being on the podcast. And I'm really excited to uh, just hear about the ways that this stirs up really good, good wrestling questions and movement among our listeners. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been too long since we got to sit and enjoy yes. uh, Marnie's cooking in Mike and Marnie's house. But you've always been incredible at facilitating thought-provoking conversations for the glory of God. So thank you for the work you're doing. And, and I really had a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, me too. If you'd like to learn more about us or find more resources, you can visit our website, searchnetwork.com, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. If you have a question, you can also reach out by email, info at surgenetwork.com.